the title of this talk is Seeing the World with Quiet Eyes. Seeing the World with Quiet Eyes. And this is a, an introduction to equanimity. Some years ago, I came across this writing from the Reverend Howard Thurman. Uh, he's a pastor in um, San Francisco, California. And this writing has continued to inspire my heart's inclination towards the practice of equanimity and the value of it in my life and in life in general. So he says, how may one work in the world courageously and intelligently on behalf of a decent world without despair and complete fatigue? What are the resources for personal rehabilitation and renewal that we may be able to look out on life with all its vicissitudes, with quiet eyes and a tranquil spirit? Seeing the world with quiet eyes. When there is equanimity in our experience, it's one of the ways we feel equanimity in our hearts in our minds. We're not reactive. We can see what's happening out there in the world and even in our own hearts with some gentle balance, not reacting to how it is, but really just seeing clearly what's going on. We're able to open to the changing outer experiences of life and to the changing inner experiences in our own hearts without adding any more suffering to it, without adding any more layers of confusion. Because in that moment of equanimity, the mind is very clear. It can be very balanced, of course. That's what equanimity means, basically. It can be very caring and connecting. This is a very powerful state of mind to have. It's an important subject to reflect on because we live in the speed of this electronic age. It's not the entire picture, it's just one slice of it, but it's a big slice of how the world around us is and how we get so entrained in it. We're bombarded by an overwhelming amount of information, information that pulls our hearts to fear and hatred and terror. Indeed, we live in this kind of world of terror. There's tragedy and loss. There's gain and praise also that we can become addicted to. So we're continuously pulled over and over again to places in our hearts that aren't so wholesome. We act and speak in ways that aren't so skillful. And to distance ourselves from all that suffering, our consumer society gives us plenty of opportunity to encourage an obsession of wanting and accumulating, even addiction. It's how it is in this world. It's something that we live with and that we really need to open to with some balance. These are universal conditions that we live in now, just as they were 
perhaps and of course in different ways in the time of the Buddha almost 2,600 years ago. I came across this writing by David Loy, uh, a popular Buddhist scholar, a Zen practitioner and also a teacher. And he hit the nail on the head when he said these things, I thought. He laid out his view that we live in a culture where our economic system institutionalizes greed. The military institutionalizes ill will and fear, perpetuates it. And the media institutionalizes delusion in the ways it draws us to hopes and dreams of things that can never bring us complete and total and lasting happiness. And the three work together to reinforce one another. It really is important to develop mindfulness in this world, to develop equanimity, to develop loving-kindness, all the practices that we're developing here in order to be able to live in this world with as great a deal of balance and caring as we can. Our reactivity, our inner reactivity in response to all of what I just talked about, the institutionalizing of greed and ill will and delusion in most Western countries, our reaction to that is what gives us more suffering. And sometimes, and most of the time, much of the time, we don't see it. Reactivity is the far enemy of equanimity. We buy into all the greed, all the terror. We believe it. We get kind of wrapped around it. We hear spin doctors talk more and more about it. And it just surrounds us inwardly and outwardly. The Buddha often spoke of the eight vicissitudes of life just to remind us over and over again that we live in this world where there is praise and blame, gain and loss, joy and sorrow, fame and disrepute. These are the eight worldly conditions, change that goes on constantly. The great winds of change. In one short life, we experience all of this over and over and over again. And we're intelligent human beings, but do we ever stop to think or to ponder or to reflect on that we can respond to it, we can be with it in ways that aren't reactive, in ways that don't close us down, in ways that are wise and bring more peace to the world? Without training, the mind's habitual unwise response to praise, to gain, to joy, and to all things pleasant is to react with greed in various degrees. This is how it is also. Just as the world is the way it is, our reactivity to the way the world is is like this, wet with an untrained mind. The unwise habitual response to what is unpleasant to experience, 
blame and loss and sorrow, all that is unpleasant, we react to with hatred, with fear, with the various forms of those experiences. So greed and hatred, these are forms of reactivity, and reactivity is the far enemy of equanimity. This is why the Buddha spoke so much of developing a mind and heart that is balanced, connecting. He spoke of equanimity with such high regard in many places in the ancient texts. He spoke of it in a way that rests the mind before it falls into extremes, the extremes of greed, the extremes of hatred, and all the various forms of it. When we can rest the mind in equanimity, it feels like a very safe place, a place where we can really take time, even though that time is just a moment, to ponder on, to see, to assess what's going on, and then to respond or to not respond. Oftentimes we forget that we have that choice to not respond. We just react so quickly. Being able to open to the outer conditions of the world and also open to the inner conditions of our heart, hearts with such clarity and honesty that we're able to really assess the total situation outwardly and inwardly. I think a lot of times we come to retreat and even no matter how long we've practiced, we sit and we notice states of the mind and the heart that we hadn't noticed before or we chose to ignore or downplay are not really open to, honestly. We need a lot of equanimity for this also. Actually, being mindful brings equanimity in quite naturally. People ask, well, why are we doing this practice? Mostly it's because we don't see so much what's going on inside, and we give ourselves a chance to see what's going on so that we can develop a wise response not just to the outer conditions of the world, but also to the inner conditions of our hearts and our minds. So with a clear mind, with a caring heart, without the inner spin of added greed and hatred and delusion of our own hearts that we're adding to the world, we're able to be with what is inwardly and outwardly, and feel a very spacious balance towards it all. When we hear the word equanimity, we think right away of the word, of the feeling, of the sense of balance. That's what equanimity implies. It is the subjective experience of equanimity, but it's not the kind of balance where we're standing on a razor's edge, and if we tip just ever so little to the left or to the right, we'll fall off and lose our balance. This is not that kind of balance. This is a wide, spacious stance where our hearts and minds can open in a big way 
we feel a deep rootedness in the ground, in the earth, in the grounding of honesty, in the grounding of being able to open to the truth of how it is and not be covered by the delusion of how we think it should be, the kind of idealistic way we think the world should be. But we ground ourselves in the truth of seeing things clearly. This is a wide, steady, stable, grounded stance. And we feel it when there's equanimity there. It's a very subjective feeling that we have about equanimity. We feel safe, we feel steady, we feel stable and grounded. And from all of that, there is a great deal of balance. There's a long Pali word. Pali is the ancient language that some of the early teachings of the Buddha were recorded in. And um, this word, when it's broken down, uh, means to stand in the middle of all this. And that Pali word is tatra majatata. We often hear the word upeka, which I'll talk about later. But this word, tatra majatata, means standing in the middle of all this. When we hear the eight vicissitudes of all of life, praise and blame, gain and loss, fame and disrepute, joy and sorrow, oftentimes it's grabbing on to what's pleasant, pushing away what's unpleasant. And we're not really able to stand. We're always moving this way and that way, running after pleasure, running away from what's unpleasant. This is samsara. This is what samsara means. But tatra majatata means to be able to stand in the middle of all this and to say, this is how it is. And how am I going to deal with it? Not just reacting right away, but really taking time to understand, to see it all with more wisdom. The Dharma gives various examples from nature, which I love, and I'll I'll name a few of them. One of them is to be like a mountain, stable. We live on, Steve and I live on the side of um, the mountain Haleakala. It's a a volcano on Maui. And it comprises about two-thirds of all of Maui. It has such a wide stance. From where we live at the 2,000-foot level, about 2,000 feet, we can see almost the top of the mountain. And it it comes in full view uh, of our house. From that place, we see many weather patterns. Many times of great rain, we've seen fire, thunder, lightning, of course. A lot of, in the past years, we've had a lot of drought. Uh, And the mountain withstands it all. It's as beautiful as ever, every day, in all of its changing nature. And of course, you know, it responds to how things are in its natural way. And this is one of the uh, parallels, or one of the ways that the Buddha described how we can feel inside when we can stand like a mountain, stable, steady, 
among all that's happening. Of course we do what we need to do in response to what life brings us. I'm not implying that we don't. But there's that deep feeling of stability that we can have among the changing uh, natural course of our lives. Another example uh, from nature is given in the Tibetan tradition. Develop a mind so filled with love that it resembles space, which cannot be painted, it cannot be marred, it cannot be ruined. So imagine that you throw paint into the air, into space. It doesn't stick there. It takes its course and it falls away. And this is how the mind of love, how imbued with equanimity can have. It can be so big, so spacious, non-sticky, that it can experience whatever is to be experienced in this course of one's life and not get ruined, not be destroyed, not be overwhelmed by anything that touches it. This is a love strengthened by equanimity, and I'll talk about that more a little later. One has a sense of a kind of spaciousness that doesn't reject anything out of delusion, out of ignorance, or ignoring what's happening because we don't like to experience things that are unpleasant. But it has a a sense of spaciousness that can say, this is part of life. This is how life goes. It doesn't let the defilements that come around stick to it. It lets them arise and pass away, as well as all the pleasant experiences. It doesn't hang on to any of those either. With the spaciousness and balance of equanimity, one is able to really see the transience of life and to see it so deeply that one gains insight, deepening wisdom from seeing the transience of life, allowing the mind and heart to experience it instead of always trying to make things, pleasant things permanent or ignore unpleasant things or run away from them so we don't have to face them. Of course, if a response is necessary, it can happen. If we need to respond to something that's going on in life, we can do it. But we do it when we know that there's an absence of greed or at least a lessening of it, or hatred. And we're able to say with whatever arises outwardly around us or inwardly in our own hearts, we're able to face the truth of how it is and say, this is how it is. Not ignoring it, not covering it up with some other idealistic idea of how it should be otherwise, or how we think it is when We're deluding ourselves, but we're able to really accept it for how it is and then respond. It may not be that we have time to wait to respond. We may have to respond immediately. Oftentimes people uh, hear about equanimity and think, oh, that's just being a doormat to life. You know, we, 
we're w walking across the street and a truck is coming and we say this is how it is and we just let it run over us or let people run over us. We take our stance when we need to. We don't let people run over us or um, fool us. We, we take wise action when we need to. No matter how many times I say this, though, in talks about equanimity, people still think it's this kind of dry, doormat feeling. So I want to tell you a story that hope will, I hope will drive the point across to you. This happened a few years ago. It's a true story about uh, going to the shopping center. A friend and I, she's a nun now. She was a nun then actually. And um, we went to the shopping center and I was buying some gifts for people, uh, the staff at, at our retreat on Maui. And we walked into the entrance of the center and not uh, far from the entrance as we just walked in, about from here to the doorway uh, going outside of the room here, a boy, a young boy was standing and immediately another young man, uh, probably teenager, came up to that young boy and started pummeling him with his fists, beating on him. And the boy who was just standing there didn't know what to do. The other guy was stronger. The guy that was getting pummeled was weaker and um, couldn't stand up, actually, just fell to the ground. And that guy who was beating him up seemed like he was taking a lot of pleasure in hitting him. Now, I wasn't going to go in there. I was wise enough not to go in and try to separate them. <laughs> but I did have the presence of mind to do what I was taught to do in a course that I had taken with my 14-year-old when she was 14 at that time. And um, it's this course where you learn how, if you're attacked, you learn how to fight back. You learn what to do. And one of the most important things to do is to start screaming at the top of your lungs. <laughs> do you have that course here? It's, it's offered by, huh? it's called model mugging. You know, mugging? And they, there's a, there are these guys, actually, they, they teach uh, jujitsu, and they decided to give this free course to all the women of the Maui community as long as they could do it. So we join the course. And what they do is they dress up in these you know, enormous pads all over the place, on their face and on their body. And they give you situations in which you have to fight back or else you're, you know, you're going to get something is going to happen that's not good. And uh, one of the first things I learned was that you scream at the top of your lungs. And or you t if you see something happening to someone else, you run towards there and you say with all your might, stop it, stop it, somebody come and help. So mostly I'm soft-spoken, unless you ask Steve. <laughs> but I can talk really, really loud and I can scream. So what I did was I ran close to where those boys were, but not that close and I screamed at the top of my lungs, get off of him, stop it, what are you doing? You know, and somebody help. People were just passing by, kind of, you know, that kind of 
cool, what you think is equanimity, but is really apathy, <laughs> just walking by, not wanting to get involved. Somebody, maybe, had the presence of mind to call a security guard. So the security guard came. I was still screaming at the top of my lungs. My nun friend was shocked to see me. Her <laughs> mouth was wide open the whole time. And um, then the, the security guard took over. The boy who was pummeling the other boy was running out and running towards me. I did have the presence of mind to get out of the way. I didn't say, this is how it is, and you know, let him come at me. So I want to tell that story and have you really understand that you do respond. You don't just stand there and say, this is how it is. Greed, hatred, and delusion exist in the world, and you know, I'm, I'm going to be part of the victim of that. You respond when you need to. But you know how to respond, or you know how to get out of the way if you need to. You have enough clarity and honesty to see if there's some aggression in your own mind. Of course, my motivation was not to be aggressive towards the aggressor there, but my motivation was to help get them apart. That was clear to me. You don't have any attachment as to how it should be. This is how it is. You know, it's not because we live in an ideal world and people shouldn't beat up on everybody else. The attachment is not present, aversion isn't present, and so when that happens, when you know that's your state of mind as much as you can, or there's a lessening of it, then you respond. You have enough sense to let it pass if that's what needs to happen. Sometimes things happen and you can't do anything about it then, but you let it come in and you make intentions to do it later, to do it when, to take action when the mind is clearer, when you can take action with a mind that's stronger. Because a mind that has attachment and aversion is a weak mind. You may seem really, really strong when you have hatred, but it's much stronger to have equanimity. So there's clear, clean intention and motivation when there's equanimity there. We gain strength and momentum when we can do it this way. People pay attention and respond better when they feel that your own heart and mind is coming from that place. It is always better to wait, if you can, to make that choice to wait and to respond when you feel the power of clarity in your own heart and mind. Otherwise, people sense your aggression. They sense your judging and your clinging to your own idea. And they only have blame for you, not too much respect. Recently, um, it's always good to give examples instead of talking theoretically. Recently, I received a letter about a year ago that wasn't that recent from a uh, a person, and that person made some statements that activated a lot of painful feelings in my heart. Reactivity, a lot of blame back or defensiveness, um, a lot of feeling of, 
I'm going to figure out a way to get back to say something that shows this person up, something like that. Not quite, but something like that. I had a strong feeling to write back right away. I wanted to. I talked it over with Steve, and he really encouraged me to just wait. Wait till those feelings subside. I thought my mind was really clear. I could say all the really smart-ass things I wanted to say. You know, when your mind is filled with aversion, that's what it comes up with. And I waited a while so that I could say what I needed to say with honesty and with um, more graciousness, but laying out the truth of how it was for my own heart. I waited till the feeling subsided where I didn't feel that aggression inside of me. And it allowed me to gather more information, for one thing, as I waited. And I waited uh, about two months to respond to that letter. I sent that letter off, and I really felt strong and stable and safe. Felt safe within me because I knew that as far as my own heart was concerned, there was nothing blamable in that letter. Whatever they come back with, or would have come back with, was their problem. It was up to them. It was in their ball court. I would have made it worse if I did anything else, if I did it another way. I want to talk about the near enemy of uh, equanimity. And this is apathy. It's really not caring. Whereas equanimity has a lot of connection, caring about the other person's welfare, caring about the situation between two people, caring about our own hearts. Apathy has no connection like that. It isn't a caring connection. This is what people think equanimity is most of the time. It's this kind of apathy, a kind of disconnection. You're not only disconnected with the other person, but you're really disconnected from your own feelings. That's where most of the apathy is churning around. Disconnected from your own feelings. It's called the near enemy because it can seem like equanimity. It can seem like the mind is really balanced but it's really more diluted than it's balanced. It really just refuses to know what's going on, inwardly or outwardly. It can stay in that uh, kind of diluted mode and think that it is. It deludes oneself into thinking that it's equanimity when it's really disconnection, not caring about what's going on. It's fueled by delusion. Whereas reactivity, which is the far enemy of equanimity, is fueled by greed and by hatred. This uh, near enemy of apathy is fueled by delusion. We think that we're chilled out, but actually we're closed down. And maybe we're closed down because we may fear or have aversion to whatever 
emotions we might open to in ourselves or in someone else. We're kind of afraid to go to those emotional states. Actually, sometimes it's a little bit of a protection. We may not be ready to go there. So it's not something that's completely blamable or wrong in oneself. So with this, I want to talk about a more common term in Pali of equanimity. This term in Pali is upeka. It's the ability to see or to experience without being caught in what is seen or experienced. The ability to be in it without being caught in it. And this is what apathy needs. It needs this ability to open to it without being caught in it. This is an important aspect of our practice to know when we're feeling the opposites of these powerful states of mind, the opposites of uh, equanimity are reactivity and apathy. It's important to know when we're feeling them, to be truthful with ourselves. Upeka, that particular expression of equanimity, is being able to be with what's going on with a clear and balanced mind and really feel safe, a safety within there. Because when we feel that safety, we can go there. We can go to the places where we might be closed down to. Apathy is a very closed mind. Again, maybe out of protection temporarily, but um, when we learn to have more balance, a more sense of being able to open a little bit and touch those places, those deeply emotional or scary places within us, we can have that feeling of great, great balance, this upeka. It opens to situations of joy and sorrow within our family, our loved ones, the world, where we can connect really fully, completely, and not be afraid of that connection because it could be scary to us. For a lot of people, sadness is scary. There's fear of fear. You know, that can be, we have uh, fear that we know is there and we add layers to it of other fear. We can connect in a way that doesn't weaken us, that really allows us to be stronger, to stay connected, to be intimate with the situation, not pull away. We stay in touch with our motivation and our intentions. We don't lose touch with uh, what's going on inside of us by being pulled to what's going out on outside of us. This is upeka, really being, uh, staying in touch with our own hearts, not being pulled out by someone else's experience. This is oftentimes what happens with loved ones, with our partners, uh, family members, friends. We're so overwhelmed by what they're going through that we don't see what's going on within us. So we stay in touch and we keep our inner composure. As a, His Holiness the Dalai Lama says, you can deal with the situation with calmness and reason in that way. 
in the practice of equanimity that we're going to do, we're going to practice staying in touch with the outer situation, developing equanimity with outer situations of our family, our friends, the world, but then also turn our attention towards what's going on in our own hearts in relationship to that outer situation, to stay in touch, to keep staying in touch with our own hearts, to be able to say about ourselves, this is how it is right now in my own heart, and to incline the mind towards equanimity, and also to be able to say about the outer world, our loved ones, our friends, situations, this is how it is in the world out there, Can I incline the mind towards balance, openness, honesty with all of that as well? Instead of being fearful about the inner reactivity that could take place. So it's really helpful to uh, be able to develop equanimity towards both, towards the outer and the inner situation. Each one of us has our own stories of how we've been caught up in another person's drama, so much so that we don't feel our own hearts. And a lot of times when we come to retreat or when Steve and I as spiritual friends hear the stories of other people, it's usually uh, in the beginning a caught-upness in some other person's drama. And the work is to come back, to come back, to know what's going on in one's own heart. It's the ability to see without being caught by what is seen. In India, the colloquially, upeka means seeing with patience, seeing with understanding. It's how a mother or grandmother or grandfather feels towards the grandchildren. It's easier to feel that kind of seeing them with patience than it is with our own children. Many of you have that experience, I'm sure. It's the experience of seeing the elderly go through their life and death process and to be able to go through it with them without being caught up in what they're going through keeping your own stance, your own stability, indeed, so that we can really support them through what they're going through. Otherwise, we're really not that much help. So when there is patience, we disarm the defiled mind, the defilements of ignorance, of delusion, of greed and hatred, His Holiness the Dalai Lama calls this the ultimate disarmament, or maybe the only real disarmament. It allows a very clean compassion to come forth when we have this kind of equanimity. It's said that equanimity leads the way towards true compassion. It's uh, It allows this ability to help, to do what we can in a way that's free from opinions and judgments of how we think it should be, uh, 
ways of aversion towards the, the unpleasant experience, hatred and um, rage about what's being done. When you hear how the Dalai Lama responds to situations of his own life, and indeed people like Aung San Suu Kyi and uh, Nelson Mandela, you see that they are full of equanimity. And so they were able to bring forth that compassionate action that is really, really powerful in their lives. It's said that equanimity is what empowers compassion. It's what leads the way. His Holiness again says, if we ourselves remain angry and then sing of world peace, it has little meaning. Equanimity is one of the four Brahma-viharas. Many of you know about the four Brahma-viharas. The Brahma-vihara means divine abode. And it's not this abode that's outside of ourselves, but it's this abode, this place of living in our own hearts, this place where we live from in our own hearts. The four Brahma-viharas are metta, which we're practicing now, and then compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity. And uh, it's said that equanimity is the king or the queen or the crown, the crowning glory of all the Brahma-viharas. Because when we've done everything we can as a wise response to life, we've offered our metta, uh, if the situation calls for it, and of course all situations call for it, or we offer our compassion, or we offer our sympathetic joy, and none of that seems to work or seems to have an effect on anything outside of us or even ourselves, then we uh, reside in the abode of equanimity, in that inner place of our hearts that says, okay, this is how it is. This is how the outer conditions are. This is how the inner conditions are. Can I just open to this for this moment, for this time period? Because it doesn't last. It too, all those conditions will change. It said that uh, we, in order to really develop equanimity, we need a lot of loving kindness. And so that's why I'm starting the practice with loving kindness. We're doing the metta practice first, because if we just do equanimity without loving kindness, it can be very dry. It can be very just so matter of fact and objective that we can't feel that it's spurred by, it comes from a platform, from the foundation of true love, of unconditional love for ourselves and for others. It's said that loving kindness or metta would dwindle to a mere sentimental feeling if equanimity were not nourishing it or supporting it. And sentimentality doesn't hold a relationship together. A relationship is held together by the ability to hold whatever, to be spacious enough to hold whatever comes in one's life. 
praise and blame, gain and loss, fame and disrepute, joy and sorrow, to be able to say, this is part of our love. This is part of our relationship. This too will pass. Because we, in, within equanimity, we can really see the, uh, the transient nature of it all. It's accepting the ups and downs of life in others, in ourselves. It's said that equanimity gives metta an unwavering loyalty to, to that place in ourselves. It really wants to hold that space. It really wants to develop that and make it grow, make it stronger. Somehow, if you have children or not, I know that you'll, you can relate to this. When Steve and I were uh, raising our daughter, Steve's stepdaughter and my daughter, Therese, by the way, she gets benefits because I put her in my Dharma talks. Uh, <laughs> huh? She gets royalties, Steve says. <laughs> oh, it's hot in here. I hope you aren't dwindling with the heat. Um, I know that during the time that we were raising her during her teenage years, <clears throat> it was a difficult time for her. She, does, she calls herself a Buddhist, the only one of the four children, and I know that there are many times that I was her difficult person when she did metta. And, of course, she was my difficult person you know, when I, I was doing the metta practice. I had to add equanimity to my metta practice a lot when I would, not just for her, but for other people too, that I knew that there was reactivity towards. So when I said the phrase for her, or offered this measure of goodwill towards her, may you be peaceful, but of course, she was, it was a time period where she wasn't peaceful. You know, everything was a problem. Not everything, but a lot was a problem, though, those hormonal times. When I said, may you be peaceful and happy, and it is how it is right now. I would have to add that because she wasn't going to be peaceful and happy, but I still offered that goodwill towards her. Metta allows us to offer that goodwill even though we know it may not be received, it may not have any effect on that other person, they may not even be grateful or know that it's happening, but still we can offer our goodwill. True metta has imbued in it that equanimity that knows that deeply because we can offer equanimity without attachment to result. This is what enables metta to be metta. We don't have attachment to result. But I had to remind myself, may you be peaceful and happy, and it is as it is for you right now. Sometimes I would just have to offer an equanimity phrase. This is how it is on your journey. All beings have their own journey through life. And this is your journey. I'm saying that with a lot of love, a lot of connection with how it is for her. It breaks down the barriers 
equanimity breaks down the barriers so that we're able to offer our loving kindness uh, in with as much um, with as great a depth to the neutral person as we are to the dear friend we're able to see that the quality of metta that we can offer to the difficult person when we really examine it it's the same as the quality of equanimity of loving kindness that we give to the dear friend. It breaks down the barriers between um, the ways that we respond, that we react, that we uh, feel towards other beings. His Holiness again calls this immeasurable inclusivity with the diversity of the world. If I asked you to imagine what your inner mindscape would be like just before enlightenment, it might be a surprise to you to learn that the mindscape would be one of equanimity, not one of tremendous bliss or pleasant experience, but it's one of equanimity. It's equanimity and a very deep balance towards all formations, all experience, anything that arises on a moment-to-moment level. Equanimity is a preparation for liberation. It's called the doorway to the unconditioned. And that's why it's so important in the teachings of the Buddha. The power of equanimity allows for the clear and ever-deepening realization of impermanence, which we'll speak of more as the days go by. The very clear and ever-deepening realization of facing the unsatisfactory nature of this conditioned existence. Really taking that in and understanding that there's Nothing in this life, in this conditioned existence, that's going to give permanent, lasting happiness. We're so um, deluded by the opposite thinking about this. The ever-deepening realization of the uncontrollability and the conditionality of all of life, which is the not-self characteristic. The power of equanimity allows for clear insight into all of these truths of how things are. The Buddha would say that for one who develops a deep, abiding equanimity, it is a natural law to know and see things as they really are, to know the Dhamma, to experience the Dhamma, Equanimity brings forth the wisdom which cuts through ignorance and delusion and brings forth the realization of complete liberation. It's the most powerful of all the um, Brahma-viharas and the seven factors of enlightenment, in a way.
So this is a extremely precious reflection that we should ponder upon often the value of equanimity in our lives, the value of developing non-reactivity towards outer conditions, towards inner conditions, the value of being open and clear and honest and balanced, really enjoying things that are to be enjoyed, nothing wrong with that, that's wonderful. We're human beings, we should enjoy what needs to be enjoyed, what comes and goes, but to know that it comes and goes. To open to what's unsatisfactory, to open to the suffering of life, but to also know that it comes and goes, and that it is all impersonal. So this is what equanimity allows for. I'd like to... uh, complete the talk tonight by uh, these words by the Venerable Achan Sumedho. The mind is like space. There's room in it for everything or nothing. We always have a perspective once we know the space of the mind. Armies can come into the mind and leave butterflies, rain clouds, or nothing. All things can come and go without us being caught in reaction or resistance. So let's sit for a moment.